Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Thank you all for being here today. I'll let you finish up your conversations. Uh, I am so excited for this evening for so many reasons. I'm excited to see you all here. Thank you for coming out um, as the weather clears up for us and going with the flow of the uh, change in time because of the weather. Um, but it's really great to be here, and I'm excited um, to have... Jonathan Wilson-Hartgrove and Natasha Sistrunk-Robinson here to share with us. Um, I'm excited because, uh, so I'm with an organization called Durham Cares, and we lead a pilgrimage of pain and hope in Durham. And through that, we really reflect on these themes of stories and uh, freedom and of race and place. And uh, Natasha and Jonathan are people who really have had not only have had journeys through those questions, but have really articulated and reflected well upon that. And uh, we are really privileged to be able to hear not only from each of them tonight, but to actually have a conversation with them on the same stage together. So, so grateful to have them here. They also brought a lot of great uh, books with them. Well, they each brought one, many copies of one <laughs> book, respective book with them. And uh, now that it's, you're getting ready for Christmas, not only can you buy one for yourself, but you can buy multiple ones for family members and give them as gifts. So uh, after the event, we'll have a book table downstairs and you can buy, I don't know, 10 or 12 books that, and send it to all your family members. Um, but we're really grateful for Oak Church for hosting this, another uh, congregation that has also reflected a lot on place and on race. Um, and really grateful for Margot for making all this happen, really. Uh, it was... Uh, her conversation with Natasha, and then uh, she asked if we could join the party, and we said yes, and so really grateful for Margot for making all this happen. So without further ado, we'll do the next piece. Thank you, friend. Um, <clears throat> I want to say very few words so you can hear more of their words. Um, you can read Jonathan and Natasha's bios um, any place. I'm guessing you're here because you already know a bit about them, um, so I'll be super brief. Um, Natasha grew up in South Carolina, and um, she attended the U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, she has an M.A. in Christian Leadership. She lives now in Greensboro with her husband, um, Durante, daughter, Ashley, and she is the founder of Leadership Links, a nonprofit that is equipping young people to be leaders. Thank you so much for helping. Um, <laughs> she's most recently a co-founder of the Call and Response uh, Church Conference. I haven't seen her for a few weeks, so she may have founded something else <laughs> since I've seen her. That's the stuff I know about. Um, Natasha is a force to be reckoned with. Um, Jonathan, are you from King? Yeah. That's your town? Okay, I felt like it was. Um, Jonathan grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, and uh, he would say, and I think he will say, that he was deep in racial blindness um, before kind of his journey. Uh, he attended Eastern University, Duke Divinity School, and kind of on this process, his eyes were opened and he was welcomed by a community of um, leaders in the black-led freedom movement, kind of inviting him into another way. Jonathan lives at Rupa House, um, an amazing house of welcome here in Durham. Um, he leads the School for Conversion, whose mission is to make surprising friendships 
possible. And please take a peek, because they really do that. Um, and it's beautiful. Um, tonight, as Reynolds mentioned, we're kind of celebrating um, the birth of these two books together. Um, Natasha's book, Sojourner's Truth, is hot off the press. Um, and it's this beautiful tapestry where Natasha has woven together five things. I don't know if that was in your mind. Do you want to know what the five things are, Natasha? This is what I think the five are. I think the five are Natasha's amazing story, uh, the story of Moses, cultural insights, theological reflection, and wisdom from kind of the history of Christian voices. So it's this beautiful tapestry, the way she weaves it together. You're going to have to buy the book. Uh, <laughs> To, to, to make sure I'm telling you the truth. Um, a beautiful book. Um, Jonathan's book, Baby, was birthed this, just this spring, uh, reconstructing the gospel, and it helps us notice and see what has happened to the gospel in America. Uh, so 19th century, well, 18th, 19th century Christians immersed in the evils of chattel slavery, and you put that next to reading the Bible, the truth of the gospel, and there had to be this creative like rereading and retelling of the biblical story. And that has in so many ways been passed down to us. And this book really gives us eyes to see and take a look at that. Um, so let me tell you what's happening this evening. We are going to begin with a reading from A Sojourner's Truth. Um, and then... Natasha and Jonathan are going to have a conversation right here that we get to listen in on. And for y'all to participate in the conversation, I want you to be on Twitter and use the hashtag stories of freedom. I did have to download the Twitter app on my ride over here. So if that's not going to work for you, will you find a neighbor that it, that it is working for and just send your question to stories of freedom and we will invite uh, Natasha and Jonathan to answer those. So that's the rhythm. It's going to be the reading, and then it's going to be the conversation, and then we're going to throw them some of our questions. Um, <clears throat> for the reading this evening, Natasha Robinson and Lauren Dan. I know the one thing we did right was the day we started to fight. Keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. A daughter of slaves, an anti-lynching activist, Ida B. Wells proclaimed, the way to right the wrongs of freedom, the way to right the wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. Shining the light of truth helps us all walk in freedom. Shining the light of truth must become a consistent and intentional practice for all believers because without these moral checks, we recreate or continue to enforce a racial division and inequalities we claim to oppose. 
Unless we turn the light of truth on all our history, we will continue as a morally corrupt nation. It is divisive to isolate certain parts of our shared history as black history without acknowledging how that history informs the lives, social structures, policies, and legacies of us all. My strongest conviction towards advocacy is that God wants people to live freely. This conviction has put me on a path to pursue racial justice. The Israelites were so oppressed that they cried out to God. For centuries, black people have continued this spiritual practice of lament and praying for deliverance. Meditate on these words from this old Negro spiritual. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. God sent Moses from the slave house to the Egyptian palace with a prophetic message of deliverance. The centuries of slavery were over. We must continue to proclaim this prophetic message until all people are free from slavery in its various forms. They don't want us to talk about slavery. A brief look at the transatlantic slave trade reveals that more than 10 million free Africans were stolen from their homeland and sold like cattle then made to suffer cruel and unusual punishment, including torture, rape, and murder. This system was built on a social construct of race, which shaped the narrative of black inferiority. It allowed for generations of wealth building for white people in the South. When the legal form of slavery finally ended, most free slaves could not read or write. This lack of education meant that they didn't know what to do with the money, even if they got their 40 acres and a mule as compensation from the government. It greatly troubles me that after the Exodus narrative of Egypt that God didn't completely abolish the system of slavery among the Israelites. He did, however, give the slaves the option of going free in the seventh year of work. He also said that they should never go away empty-handed as slave owners were required to liberally provide for their slaves at their departure. Black people have never received this level of compensation or reparations. African Americans started out as slaves, where they did not have free agency of their own minds, bodies, skills, work, resources, families, or property. And they left that system with nothing. These are historical facts we are too quick to forget. Americans remember what we deem important. No one says to the Jewish community to get over the Holocaust, pretend it never happened. On the contrary, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum was opened on April 26, 1986. But it was not until September 24, 2016, a full 30 years later, that the National Museum of African American History and Culture opened in our nation's capital. It is so easy for the dominant people group to call out injustices in other countries, while not taking a look at themselves to repent of the many ways they continue to terrorize people of color at home. Go down, Moses, way down 
must not forget that artifacts have meaning and depth. They send a clear message to the world about what we deem most important. I suppose those in the dominant people group want to avoid or ignore this conversation for numerous reasons. Our nation's heritage is embarrassing and it can evoke feelings of guilt and shame. Quite frankly, others want to ignore this history and don't want us to talk about slavery because they don't want deliverance for the enslaved to ever come. Let's confess this truth and get to talking. When will deliverance come? What do you say about our country? Although we have seen progress in the United States, I've never believed that we lived in a post-racial America. I did consider that with the changing racial demographics that will soon lead to whites being in the minority, we would eventually learn to respect each other, to respect our humanity, to appreciate our differences, to work together for a better future. That hope started to dwindle on July 13, 2013 when a jury acquitted George Zimmerman of the murder of the 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. I was spending that Saturday evening in the home of my godparents, who were civil rights activists in their own right, and we were surrounded by love and fellowship of black friends. There was more than five generations of black friends in, on that evening, and we were eating great food and laughing out loud and reminiscing about life and love and the legacy of our shared stories. As the evening drew near close, several of us migrated to the back porch where the cool summer breeze kissed our faces and we watched as the starlights twinkled on the surface of the river and we cherished our cups of vanilla ice cream. It was a beautiful day. I glanced through the window into the kitchen only to notice that several eyes were now glued to their cell phones. Before long, our tranquility had been disturbed, and I heard the words, the verdict is in. We all moved quickly to gather around the main television in the family room. There we heard that George Zimmerman had been found not, not guilty on all accounts. The message was clear. Trayvon's black life was not worthy of justice. We sat in deafening silence for a few minutes. A black boy was dead and his killer was now free. This is a refrain that keeps repeating itself. I fought back tears. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. None of us know exactly what happened in the final moments of Trayvon's life. We know that he was walking through a neighborhood trying to get home. Besides his clothes and shoes, the only possessions on his black body were a cell phone, a bag of Skittles, and a bottle of sweet tea. We also know that if his killer, George Zimmerman, had simply followed the instructions of the 911 dispatcher, then Trayvon might have lived. Incidentally, this murder happened in Florida, a stand-your-ground state. Did Trayvon have the right to stand his ground or fight for his own life? This case revealed again that there is often little grace in America for black people who insist on fighting for their freedom who have the audacity to exercise their rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This endless assault on black lives with impunity finds its roots in the American soil of slavery. Slavery, in all of its forms, must cease. Go down, Moses. 
way down in Egypt land and tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Approximately one year later, events in the city of Ferguson became the real wake-up call for a new generation of black activists. For me, this awakening happened as riots and police brutality was documented live and reported through my Twitter newsfeed. The events on the ground were captured by people who lived and were invested in Ferguson, by those who counted the cost of the devastating loss in their own community. My heart broke as I saw old black and white photos of police carrying assault rifles and sickened dogs on black people placed next to these new colorful images of police in military assault gear and weapons patrolling the streets of Ferguson. There have been far too many murders of innocent and unarmed black people to count. Some of them make national news or become hashtags, but others are known only to those immediately affected. In addition to the loss of their lives and the assault on their characters, these victims have another thing in common. Their killers continue to go free. From the first route of the transatlantic slave trade until now, the message in America has been that black lives do not matter. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Stand up to Pharaoh. When people of color cry out for justice, we are crying out to God for freedom. We do this for ourselves and for each other. It is also an opportunity for white people to see the era of the distorted message that has been perpetuated throughout history. It is a challenge to change the narrative, to tell the truth. When the people of God collectively say that black lives matter, it is a prophetic lament, a cry to God to deliver, to execute justice, to be a defense. God sent the Israelites a savior. And by the time Moses brought the message of deliverance to Pharaoh, the Israelites had been in Egypt for 430 years. God had heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Because of his concern, God sent Moses to deliver a clear message to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Can you hear the cries of God's people throughout history, through blood and white supremacy? Let my people go through frogs and slaves. Let my people go through gnats and black codes. Let my people go through the death of livestock and lynching. Let my people go through boils and Jim Crow segregation. Let my people go through hell and voter suppression. Let my people go through locusts and racism. Let my people go through darkness and the war on drugs. Let my people go through death of your firstborn and mass incarceration. Let my people go slavery in all of its forms must. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land, tell Pharaoh to let my people go.
Well, thank you. And thanks to you, Lauren, for uh, this song. I was thinking as you were singing there about um, the story of um, Al Rabato, who grew up in Louisiana. And uh, when he went to graduate school in religious studies, wanted to write about the faith of his grandmother, who had been enslaved, and the you know, scholars who were teaching him about the academy said, you can't, uh, you can't write about slave religion because there's no primary documents to work from. And he said, uh, he said, oh, no, no. I heard Grandma sing those songs. And he wrote that wonderful book, Slave Religion, uh, uh, drawing from those songs the theology of this church that recognized the connection between the Exodus story and the story of a people who were told by folks who called themselves Christian that they were property, and yet in the story of the people who preached, you know, obey your masters, in that story heard uh, the good news of this liberating power. It's, re it's really quite a miracle. Mm -hmm. And um, I hear that in the song here tonight. I hear it in your story. So first of all, thank you for sharing your story uh, with us here and with um, the broader world through this book. Um, I wanted to start just by, uh, you know, having done a bit of storytelling myself, um, uh, if, it, if it's all right with you, I wanted to start by just asking, how has it been for you to share this story publicly <laughs> in this time that we're living in which part the writing of it or the speaking about it well uh, i'd be interested in both but uh but i'm especially interested in uh for for, for the benefit of uh, those of us who've gathered here mm -hmm. i think uh i would like to hear how it's felt to have your story received mm -hmm. and or not received yeah. Uh, sometimes rejected in this current context? Um, it's been interesting. Um, it, it's, I think, interesting because even today, I don't engage a whole bunch on social media. Mm -hmm. I think people think I'm on there a lot more than I am. I'm a pretty private person. And so, um, but I did look on Amazon today at some of the book reviews that was out. And so I had a woman who I don't know, um, seemed to be a very decent white woman, um, and I say she's white because she said she was white. Um, um, and she said, it was like a three paragraph review. And it was a four star, you know, out of five, not bad. And she said, uh, you know, Natasha has become one of my distance teachers. I'm so grateful for her voice. And then somewhere mixed in there, she said, uh, I just really wish, yeah, I really want to listen to her, but I really wish she wouldn't play the victim so much because that, that just got annoying after a while. And I just thought that was interesting because people who know me well know <laughs> not at all, right? Um, and so it just made it interesting to me, not surprising, but to say to someone, again, that hasn't lived the experience to say, I'm just annoyed reading about it. Like, how you feel, how you think we feel living it every day? You, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm sorry. Like I can't. You know I'm not sorry, but it's just like, you know. So even that was 
I see someone trying and I don't knock people for trying, but also looking at it and saying, you know, what is it in you that makes that annoying, mm -hmm. right? And I wanna contrast that with, I interviewed a friend on my podcast, so I, I launched a podcast in connection to the book, um, titled Sojourner Truth, and this woman, Jo Saxton, she actually came to the United States as a missionary mm. from, from England. And so the story she heard about America was very different because she's not African-American. She's an African. She's of Nigerian descent mm -hmm. who was raised in England, who lives in America. She's not African-American. Mm -hmm. So to some extent, we have some of the same challenges, but to some extent, we don't. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what she said when I interviewed her on my podcast, she said, I read a lot about America before I got here. Mm -hmm. And um, she said a lot of what I read was a lot more honest than what I read about it once I moved here. Mm -hmm. She said, and then your story is the first time I've heard the story of America told from an African-American woman's perspective. Mm -hmm. And so it just really, for me, um, clarified the importance of having people of color tell their own stories. Yeah. Right, and I think, and, and not even just telling the story, but being very intentional and conscious. Like I love education too. Like I just love to read, and I, a lot of my nonprofit work is for for children, and what we teach, and say to our children, mm -hmm. right? Because the history lessons we even get and perpetuate in school, is not the whole story. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm sharing in my book. Um, when Margot said five parts, I, I normally say three, right? It's my story, it's the biblical story of Moses and the Exodus narrative, and the story of African Americans in this country. And so that latter part, people who are not African American, and some African Americans, most of the time they don't know the story. Mm -hmm. And so it's not playing a victim, it's like, let me tell you a part of this story that you probably don't know. And I need to do that for you to hear what it is I'm trying to deliver, because if not, you're going to be responding yeah. on misinformation. Yeah. Now, what, one of the things I really appreciate about your book is is the way, and in, in keeping with uh, really a great tradition that you're you're kind of uh, ushering and and bringing together, you're you're telling um, this story of the African American experience in this country in a way that opens up what the Bible's really about, yeah. right? Yeah. And I just, it, 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 it makes me want to, uh, to ask, you know, to what extent do you feel like um, that not only are people who are in the church, people who are trying to be Christian in America, um, not getting the full picture of what it means to be an American, when we get this truncated story of the experience here. But to what extent are we being kind of blocked from understanding what it means to be Christian? Yeah. What it means to to receive this this biblical story that has been passed down to us. Yeah. I I remember um when I was in seminary, I my I hated history mm. until I got to seminary. Uh-huh. Because my seminary professor for early church history, he was so good, and he loved history. And so I started digging more into history after that. I mean, before that, I just memorized facts and passed tests, you know, but I didn't really care too much about it. Um, and so I asked him one time, I said, how is it as Christians? Because we didn't just get it wrong in America. We've gotten it wrong in a lot of places, yeah. <laughs> right? right, throughout history. It's like, how can we... 
because it is a we. Like, we are the church. Like, how can we have gotten this so wrong so consistently mm-hmm. when we say we have a message that's about love and freedom and deliverance and redemption and all these things? And we get this, like, we out here murdering folks, right? Mm-hmm. And he said to me, and this speaks against this false uh, understanding that, oh, well, just go with the Bible and that's it. He says, we are all products of our time. And so what we don't acknowledge often is that when we come to the text, we're bringing our sociology, we're bringing our culture, we're bringing our family upbringing, we're bringing our history, like we're bringing all that stuff to the text. And all of that stuff impacts how we interpret. Mm-hmm. So if you are born into a system in a time where being white is all right and being black is subhuman, then you're bringing that to the text. And that's how you can use the text to justify what's norm for you. And yet I think what part of what I hear in, in your story and, and read in your book is um, this incredible way that the experience of what I think can only rightly be called unearned suffering, right? The yeah. long, long experience of unearned suffer- suffering by African Americans actually illuminates what the biblical story is really about, right? This, this way in which, you know, the God who raised Israel out of Egypt and raised Jesus from the dead mm-hmm. is a God who comes to life, yeah. right? In the story of people who, who, uh, who, who heard that call. Um, go down Moses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, uh, I think a lot these days about what does it mean for the church, that is everybody who claims to follow Jesus, um, in this moment that we're living in, to take that gospel seriously, yeah. right? Can it save us from this mess we're in? Because we're in a mess. We got a straight up white nationalist regime in this country that by every report that pays any attention to the reality on the ground Mm -hmm. that I've read is being propped up by Christians. Yeah. People who call themselves Christian. Yeah. Like it wouldn't exist without that. Right. There's not a base for it except for this Christian nationalism that that, that has has propped it up. And so given that that's, and and it's terrorizing people, right? Right. I mean, I was thinking as you were talking about, (laughs) you were talking about Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about my sister, Tracy Blackman, who was there, Mm -hmm. you know, with her church because it was her community. She was on the streets as a pastor and, um, and, began to realize that her work as a pastor was to confront this this resurgent white nationalism in this country. And uh, just this week, she was uh, arrested down there on the border because she was trying to meet with the migrant caravan that's come up to Tijuana. Mm -hmm. And the Border Patrol arrested, I think, 32 ministers who were there Mm -hmm. uh, to simply offer the welcome, the grace, the... The, the blessing of the church, mm-hmm. which, I mean, 
seems like pastors have to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're arrested for it this week. And so anyway, in, 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 I'm just trying to sketch our context sure. a little bit and, sure. and, to, and to ask you in this context, like in the, in the everyday messiness of this context that we're living in, yeah, what, what, what kind of hope, what kind of uh, uh, good news yeah. does, the, does the gospel that comes out of the edges of the plantation, yeah. that comes out of yeah. The, yeah. The, 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 <laughs> the, the gut bucket Jim Crow South, yeah. that, you know, that, that comes out of uh, Ferguson mm-hmm. and places like that? What, 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 kind, what does that gospel offer us that uh, we might miss if we don't hear it from people who've known it in those places? So a few things, because you gave me a lot there. I think, <laughs> I think number one, that the truth brings hope, right? And the Holy Spirit is a spirit of, of truth, uh-huh. right? So it is a radical act to tell the truth in a world of fake news. Right, is a radical act to tell okay. the truth. So I think number one, the historical, national, political truth we have to name is that our founding documents, our founding fathers, the foundation of our country, the rights and the standards and the policies were for men who identified as white. It was not for everybody. Right? It was not for every human. It was for men who identified as white. That's a truth that we have to name. That is the foundation right, of our country. The foundation of our policing in our country is for uh, people having to grab runaway slaves. Mm-hmm. That is a truth that we have to name. Yeah. Now, I think you know, in today's society, in t- Oh, <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, I think, you know, where we are today, um, when I think about, when I think about, so the book is broken up into four parts, um, foundation, history, um, wilderness, and redemption. So in the redemption section of my book, um, because a lot of times we think about racism and a lot of things you're talking about. We're because again our culture, the culture is individualism. Mm-hmm. So how is this impacting me? And I am not a racist, yeah. right? Which does not leave space for a discussion about community mm-hmm. and people groups mm-hmm. and how we collectively are impacted by systems that are broken and wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I write about in the section section on redemption is two things need to happen. I think they need to happen at the same time. One is there needs to be Christians in our culture, in our America right now that are working to dismantle broken systems. And our, our system is broken at the core, yeah. <laughs> right? So that needs to happen. But I also feel, and I not but, not negating, and I also know that there needs to be Christians that are working to build new systems. Mm -hmm. And for me, I feel more of a call to the latter. 
Um, that's not for everybody. I think we need everybody out here. Do, it's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> Just pick something, right? <laughs> right? Like pick something. But for me, like I feel a lot of my calling right now is in the building of new systems, right? Mm -hmm. um, that are equitable, where uh, people of color have a place and agency and their voices are valued and they're not a project and um, you know they'll lead stuff and their own stuff and they'll build things right um, and then that will be sustained over generations mm -hmm. and that type of building and work takes time mm. and intentionality and money mm. in the same way that the people that are dismantling this other system over here that has been built over time yeah. with a lot of money mm -hmm. to your, mm -hmm. you know, um, to your point. And so I just think we have to do both. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think the latter part of that spiritually, you know, it's a reminder to me, like this world is not our home, but also mm. we're not just supposed to be waiting and sitting down for the high and by pie in the sky either, mm -hmm. you know, that the kingdom is now and not yet. And so if Jesus has ushered in the kingdom, the question I'm asking the church, the question I'm asking believers is, what does it mean? What does it look like for you to be a citizen in a kingdom where Jesus is Lord, mm -hmm. not Caesar, not Pharaoh, not the president, not money, yeah. not your job, not not your title, none of that. Like, yeah. what does it mean to be a citizen in a kingdom? Mm -hmm. And that's the question I'm asking at the end of the book, really, mm -hmm. where Jesus is Lord. Yeah. And I think the stories you're telling are so important because, like, we do have a history of a prophetic Christianity that has tried to imagine in its own context just what you're saying. I mean, uh, you, 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 when you talk about, like, we got to change the system and we've got to build some you know, ways to survive and thrive right now. It, it, it makes me think of the abolitionist struggle, right? When uh, clearly there's a long-term plan mm -hmm. for how do we uh, get to the core of what's wrong with the Constitution. Right. And I mean, people argued about that. Brother Garrison burned the Constitution at one point. I mean, yeah, there were people who were, who were very angry about, but, but, but in the midst of that struggle about how do we change the system, there was an ongoing conversation about how do we end slavery? How do we, you know, in the fugitive slave law, how do we end these these pieces of a broken system that exist? While at the same time, there was active organizing around mm -hmm. how do we get people to freedom? Right? Yeah. There's an underground railroad that's built by people who you know are part of this understanding that the, you know the way things are is not the way they're supposed to be. And yet, in the meantime, we're going to figure out how do we get people across the Ohio River? How do we get them to Canada? How how do we uh, make it so that people can thrive? Um, that, yeah, that, that seems to, it seems to me that, like, when we pay attention to these stories of freedom and the way the Bible has informed those stories, it, it gives us, uh, some hope that it's possible because it has happened. Um, that seems really important. Um, well, Margot brought the sign up because we are inviting other people to join the conversation by using this hashtag, right? So... Or you could just be old school. If they want to just walk up and pick up the mic, they can do that too.
Temporarily, temporarily. <laughs> Great. No, thanks. I'm going to ask you a question. All right. I, um, this is the first time we've spoken since I read your book. And what, what so reconstructing the gospel, finding freedom from a slaveholder religion. You once were blind, but now you see. <laughs> it's like trees walking around. <laughs> right. Yeah, right yeah. I read that somewhere. Mm. I read that somewhere. Yeah. So what was the catalyst for you? Yeah. Well, um, I think grace, as I understand it, is God interrupting us. Mm. We get interrupted. And uh, I was interrupted by a few things. One was by um, experiencing the dead end of the culture wars uh, by getting involved in politics. Mm. So, so that happened for me because as a kind of inheritor of this legacy, this is, this is actually something I've been thinking about today because I don't know if you all saw, but yesterday the um, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary issued its report on the legacy of slavery and racism at that particular institution. It's the oldest institution in the Southern Baptist Church. That's the church that I was raised in. The Southern Baptist Church was founded, for those of you who don't know, in 1845 by people who wanted to keep their slaves, mm -hmm. basically. Northern, Northern Baptists at the time had become uncomfortable. Let's, let's not let Northern Baptists get away with being radicals in any way. They had simply become uncomfortable with... Uh, uh, the fact that uh, they were being asked to commission slave-holding Christians as missionaries to other parts of the world. Right. So that was the divide. But they issued this uh, report, which is quite detailed in terms of um, the history of slaveholder religion and uh, the way it was defended by the people who founded that institution and other Southern Baptists, and um, the way that that way of reading the Bible uh, was perpetuated after the end of the Civil War, right? And, and so they document in there that, I mean, many things I, I document in the book, that, mm -hmm. that the people who, you know, had, had argued for slavery after the Civil War was over, are, you know, continued to argue for white supremacy, uh, argued that redemption, you know, this, this important word, a word that you use, right? It's the mm -hmm. word that's in the heart of our tradition. But redemption in that late 19th century context of white people using the word was redeeming the South from what they called Negro rule and Northern corruption, right? It was, it was redeeming the South from this thing that had been imposed upon um, Southerners by uh, the Union Army. So uh, th that's documented in this uh, 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 review, this historical review, that uh, interestingly stops about 1964. Right, so they go back and tell this whole story uh, up until f basically the time when uh, the current leadership of that school came to the school, right? <coughs> and there's no there's no way to th there's no even attempt within the report to grapple with um, the particular form of slaveholder religion that I inherited, which was the uh, the 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 habit and way of reading the scripture that slaveholders had developed that was separated from the racialized language. That's what happened after the 1960s. It, it, 
didn't just happen in the Southern Baptist mm -hmm. Church. It happened in America, right? Mm -hmm. It was you, you could no longer speak openly about white supremacy, and so the Southern strategy in politics mm -hmm. became to divide people by uh, what we sometimes call racial dog whistles or uh, you know, ways of communicating racialized culture without using racial terms. Um, <laughs> well, I came, I came up in that and wanted to be involved in politics, and so I got quite involved in conservative right-wing politics as a young person and was doing all that I could to you know, um, get to the White House for Jesus. That was my kind of goal. Um, and so, because uh, he's the Messiah, that's the kind of Messiah we right, want. That's right. That's yes. right. There's, there's, yeah, uh, to be a good Christian within the white, the slaveholder religion, white Christianity that I was raised in was yeah to, to essentially, uh, okay. yeah, c take on <laughs> the white man's burden, take on this um, need to save the world from yeah. all that is uh, corrupt and evil. And um, well, anyway, I ended up in a in a in a uh, Southern senator's office in Strom Thurmond's office. He was mm -hmm. the senior most. You're from South Carolina. I know you know, him. You know the story. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, and um, uh, thankfully, I think uh, had been uh, raised by people who um, made me memorize enough of the Bible that I could see that something was wrong. Like this just didn't add up. And um, so it was that interruption of, of realizing the sort of deep moral contradiction within that world that made me want to ask questions and see, you know, if there was another way. But I, I don't, I actually don't think that, um, given the mess that we're in, and this is actually my, this is actually my uh, fundamental problem with that report, which it's 71 pages. I I read the whole thing. Um, uh, you don't have to. But uh, <laughs> when I, but but when I got to the end of it, I, and this is as much confessional as it is critical. Um, I realized in that report what I realized about myself uh, twenty years ago, which is that there's, there's not really a way to think yourself out of this, right? Mm -hmm. It's a sort of captivity that we, we I, th I really do believe we have to be led out. We have to be saved together. We can't be saved on our own and we need the help of people who who know this other way. And so that's the other thing I would say is that you know in addition to kind of running into a dead end and and realizing that something was wrong, I met um, I met prophetic black Christians who were gracious enough to take my hand and lead me along the way. So uh, yeah, people who've been my teachers uh, told me many of the same stories that you tell in your book, mm -hmm. you know, introduced me to the light of truth that Sister Ida B. Wills um, encourages to shine and Sojourner Truth and Frederick mm -hmm. Douglass and, and uh, many others who we don't know so well, mm -hmm. right, but mm -hmm. who, have, who have lived that tradition um, uh, and who have loved people into that way. I think, yeah, um, so really I have one more question for him. Okay. And I, then I have I'm a follow-up for them. Because you said you've been led out. Mm. So another thing that's been intriguing to me about your story is that you submit to leadership of people of color. I will say that. Um, mm. African-American leadership in particular that you communicate here. Um, 
question one a um because the slaveholder religion that you talk about that it teaches you to fear that mm -hmm. so were you afraid and why did you continue even if you were afraid and i guess along the same lines is why do you think that's important mm -hmm. for people that have your background in history Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I do think that uh, whiteness teaches people who imagine ourselves to be white or who are taught to imagine ourselves to be white, it teaches us all kinds of fears. Um, I don't know, though, that, that in particular I had internalized a fear of the black church or of black prophetic Christianity it, it had simply not been on the radar, right? It was, it was as if it didn't exist. Right. Uh, so it wasn't even present enough to the world that I was in right. to be told to be afraid of it. Right. Um, so, uh, um, so, yeah, in many ways it was, um, it was simply the attractive power of it that drew me in. Mm -hmm. it, was the, uh, it was the beauty of a revolutionary love ethic in the midst of a world where, I, you know, I I loved Jesus. I loved the Jesus stories. I loved the, those, you know, uh, I loved that message that I had been taught as a child, but I hadn't seen it. Right. Like I hadn't right. seen it right. fleshed out. Right. The yeah. story, you know, the story that the preacher told about what happened 2,000 years ago felt so compelling mm -hmm that it made like the actual stuff that we did as church seem like silly. Mm -hmm. Like the stories were much better right, than the right, reality. Right, right. And, um, <laughs> right. you know, and then I met people like Ann Atwater here in Durham, mm -hmm. right? Who, um, whose daddy made her memorize the same stories yeah. also in the King James version. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, you couldn't have your biscuit if you didn't say your memory verse for the day. Like that. So we kind of connected around having that shared common experience. But she had, she had kind of like you do in your storytelling, she had lived this life where the stories kind of animated what she did yeah. and uh, informed her imagination for what was possible. And I just found that so compelling mm -hmm. that... Um, um, well, much of white Christianity just felt boring, <laughs> or like it was a, or like it was a kind of exercise in uh, keeping up appearances. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can I, I jump questions? in with a couple of questions for y'all? Sure. Yeah. Um, first one for Natasha. <clears throat> I'm curious about how your history of military service informs this journey towards freedom equity, hope, and systems building? Oh, that's loaded. Um, <laughs> so I spent 11 years of my adult life in the military environment. I graduated high school, went to the Naval Academy Preparatory School, spent four years at the Naval Academy, six years as an officer in the Marine Corps. Um, and it's very simple, I, I would say, um, for me, because a lot of the Bible is written in militarized language. Hmm. 
Like there's a lot of fighting in, let's, let's we're gonna tell the truth, there's a lot of fighting in the Old Testament. And a lot of that is about kingdom and kingdom building. And, um, or God passing judgment on people, which happens. Right. Um, and then there in the New Testament, um, we see a lot of disciples or followers of the way coming to this faith understanding under a very violent, military, strong empire that is Rome, right? Um, particularly, you know, a lot of Paul's writings. And so when Paul is using analogies about how we run and how we fight and how we train as warriors, like I understand that language in a different way because I've trained my body in that way. I've trained my, I discipline my mind in that way to be, to compete, um, to win, you know, um, in that way, to fight in that way. Um, and so I felt like spiritually I was understanding some things that he was trying to communicate a lot of times to his original audience because they understood and they had an environment. For people who haven't been in that environment, they have a tendency to miss some of those things. And so I actually wrote more about that in my first book about um, mentoring and discipleship. Like, like, like we don't haphazardly make disciples. Like we actually have to train and raise people up and teach them and give them a chance to practice, you know, because that's a part of what it means to make someone strong, you know, physically, but also spiritually. Um, but in this case, um, for system building and, and things, um, I think, you know, I have a chapter in this book. Each of the chapters are one word titles. And I had a chapter in here um, titled Anger. And I think the subtitle of that one is, the truth is there's something that can kill you. And so um, I've been wrestling with this idea because I was angry about a lot of things coming. And I'm not an angry person, let's be clear. But I, I think at the time that I was writing this book, um, part of the thing that I was wrestling with, with God, my spiritual formation, my, my questions to him, my wrestling was like this anger, this righteous anger about so much injustice that I was seeing. And it's like, Jesus, do something about this, right? Um, that's what my wrestling was with him. And so um, part of that came out in this chapter I wrote on anger. And um, part of that, I write about violence because, again, the vi the Bible is itself, the truth is, is a very violent book. If you read it, like I read all of it, right? Not just parts of it, not just the popular stuff. Like I read the whole Bible. It's a violent book. And so I feel like when I, you know, when I came to those things, you know, one of the questions I was asking is, you know, what is it that we do with our righteous anger? How do you be angry and not sin, as the Bible calls us to, right? And what is it, like, what is a response for a people that have not just been oppressed, but have been violently assaulted? You're like, what's the response to that? And, and I take even, you know, in my military um, training, like, I take more of a nonviolent posture because the only satisfaction for violence is death. Right. And and I don't like I think there's a better way. You know, I think there's a better way for that. Um, I, I just don't want a whole bunch of dead people lying around um, not in, and not res resolved, you know, and not reconciled. Like because I just don't know how that's going to go for some people. So I'll, I'll, I'll rather give you some time. The grace is let's get some time and get this better, <laughs> you know, um, to figure this out. And so I think the. You know, how we build was the question, like part of it, like how we build systems in light of 
that I want to make sure. Yeah, how does that inform your system building now? Yeah, so um, for me, the military training, the rigor of um, training, disciplining your mind, because whatever you're going to do physically with your body is, is something you have to commit in your mind first to. And so um, the knowledge base and, and how we teach people and what we teach them, like like this slaveholder religion, that is a system that we have been indoctrinated into. Like it's an orientation, like everybody gets it, right? Like we don't know we get it and the reason we don't talk about it, the reason you say that this black thing that's happened over here wasn't even something you feared, you didn't see because you have been indoctrinated into another system. And so for me, um, part of that, like how I lead, how I disciple, how I mentor, it is a form of indoctrination to some extent, right? Not to make more um, people like me or to think like I think or to make many me's, but really to say, this is the king, right? Like this is the way walk in it. But what does that look like, not just spiritually and theologically, like with a whole bunch of head knowledge, but like you said, like how does it look like as a witness? Because if I am a military person, I am an ambassador for a country. Like I represent the country. My uniform signifies something, right? And if it's sloppy, that says something too, not just to the people who are looking at me, but it says something to my peers. It says something about my unit, right? So when I'm thinking about it from a military perspective, like, do I look like the church? Like, do I look like the bride? Like, what does it mean for me to be a priesthood, right? Um, and again, to be a citizen in the kingdom where Jesus is king, like, what should that look like? And how do I form, you know, and how do I first myself, disciple, making a disciple, how do I form myself to um, be other, like to be other, so if my natural inclination is to be angry and violent, like how do I form, what does my spiritual formation looks like for me to respond in a way that's other than my natural inclination? Because that's the work of the Holy Spirit, and that's what Jesus does, right? And so for me to be other, then I have to submit to that radical work, and that should feel uncomfortable. Natasha, thank you so much. Quick question for Jonathan. Um, this uh, person asked, as a fellow dad in a transracial family, I'm spurious, if, if that's the word, <clears throat> to know what some of your greatest emphases and prayers in your family, neighborhood, and city. Mm. Does that make sense? Kind of. I'm going to guess the word's curious. No, it's spur spurious. Oh, spur okay, spurious? Okay. All right. All right. I, I have a lot oh, of confidence okay. in... So I, I, in whatever. the asker. Fair enough. I can't right. say it, but that is definitely the word. Yeah. I it means I really want to know okay. um, some of your emphases and prayers in your family, neighborhood, city. <laughs> well, um, you know, I'm grateful for this meditation on the way military informs what we're about because it reminds me of what Gandhi said um, you know, he talked about uh, forming people as satyagrahas, the, the, the nonviolent soldiers, right, who were going to transform the world through the power of nonviolence. Uh, he thought that was a battle, mm -hmm. a great struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he said, mm -hmm. he said there's, a, there's some hope that a soldier will become a satyagraha. There's no hope that a coward will, right? This so So he thought that the discipline and the courage that the military taught people was a sort of 
important preparation. He had served in the military in um, South okay. Africa okay. and thought that was an important uh, preparation for the kind of disciplined collective courage that's required collective. for the for the work that, that we're called to do. So to the question of sort of, you know, what my prayer is in, in terms of my own family, um, I mean, I, I do think about parenting that way, right? What does it mean to raise up children in a community that exhibits a kind of collective courage to stand up to the systemic evils that, that exist in our world and also to, you know, create these life-giving opportunities that people near to us are always going to need if we're, if we're going to make it. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my ongoing prayer. And, uh, you know, there's nothing like raising children to uh, make you uh, intensely aware of how, like, the particular formation process mm -hmm. is unique to each individual. <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. that's what my children teach me every day. Mm -hmm. They're like, mm -hmm. you know, you can have your kind of vision for what you want, uh, you know, but, but every person has their own process that they're going through. And, and um, yeah, ki kids are one way to learn that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, thanks for asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what? Because I want us to have some time together downstairs, mm -hmm. I am interested in releasing you two, and we're going to join you in just a minute. So will you grab your waters oh. after we thank you? Let's thank them first. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> thank you all thank you. so much. If you guys take your bars and go downstairs, we are going to follow you in like a minute so you're, you can breathe for that long. <clears throat> um, okay. Thanks. Everybody here, I am fixing to release you down the stairs. Um, one of Oak Church, Church's neighbors, about a block that way, is El Centro Hispano. Uh, an amazing organization right next to Food Lion that is uh, supporting the Latino community in the Triangle. You'll be happy to know I went to them this week and asked where we could find tasty baked goods. And they sent me to the Panaderia on Roxborough Road. So you're going to have some yummy treats downstairs. Um, there's no dieting tonight. I don't think there's any calories in food that is eaten in the month of December. <clears throat> so please enjoy lots of carbs downstairs. Uh, Jonathan and Natasha will be at a table where, I think you remember, they will be selling their books. And I really do encourage you to pick some up for gifts. Uh, the type of person that it would be great to get Sojourner's Truth for is somebody who loves memoir, who loves stories, um, lovers of justice, and people who are trying to wrestle to understand the cultural and racial issues of the day. Um, the other guy, Reconstructing the Gospel, um, are people, I hope in your family, people who are thinking about how racism distorted Christian faith in America. And Jonathan actually also has, um, it's like a book study guide combo called Awakening of Hope um, that give you the opportunity to have this conversation with others. Um, that's the business. I'm so glad you guys are all here. And keep it going. Um, back that way and then down the stairs. Thank you, guys. <laughs>